0: If this is your uh, first time here, this is the, uh, the fourth in a series of Origins messages. Uh, actually, the first one technically would have been the Sunday prior to Christmas, in which we talked about the consummation of the ages. And we're going to revisit some of that today. But truly, we're in the third part of the Origins series, looking into the book of Genesis and trying to understand what God was communicating to us. People love to communicate. People love to connect with each other. If that were not true, the cell phone industry would not exist. Okay? The cell phone industry was built on the premise that people like to connect. They want to talk to each other. Paneras, Beaners, Starbucks would be out of business if people did not like to connect. There would be one person per table. God created us in a way that we want to connect with each other. It's a desire to that's born of God, to communicate with each other. God communicates to us through his word. There was a a, a mom that I read about just recently who uh, was very ill, and she was in bed with the flu, and her daughter, a, a real young girl, about seven years old, decided to take care of her mom. And so she went into the kitchen and put some water on to boil and brought her mom a hot cup of tea. And her mom was surprised and said, Kathy, I didn't know you knew how to make tea. And she said, I've watched, Mom. You've talked to me about it before. And so I put water on to boil, and then I put the tea leaves in the pan, and then I drained the water uh, over the strainer like I was supposed to do. And she said, but Kathy, I told you I threw the strainer out. And she said, that's okay, Mom. I found a fly swatter to strain it through. (laughs) But don't worry, because I use the old one, not the new one. (laughs) Really gets you, doesn't it? She communicated to her daughter one thing, but she forgot to put the whole piece together. We're looking at a text of Scripture in which God put the whole thing together. And we're trying to understand it. And so that's why we spend time in this. Now, there's four types of communication from God in which... He communicates to us through His Scriptures. And we accept that as revelation, inspiration, illumination, and interpretation. We need that PowerPoint up there for that one though. Revelation, God has spoken. Inspiration is God-inspired. Illumination, through His Spirit. And revelation, let's back up one. And interpretation, our role in studying. Now let me give you a passage if you're writing notes down for each of those revelation is Hebrews 1:1 1, 1. inspiration is 2 Timothy 3:16 illumination is 1 Corinthians 2:10 and interpretation that's our role in studying is Psalms 19, 8. I want to get three things very clear with you before we break into the text this morning three things that you need to keep in mind things that we've been discovering along the way First of all, Genesis as a book of origins doesn't exist in order to validate God or his existence. He doesn't need the book of Genesis to validate him, but it is a distinct expression of his to communicate to us. And that's the way you need to read it. God's trying to communicate to me. Number two, God doesn't need archaeology, thermodynamics, microbiology, He doesn't need any of the sciences to validate his existence. But he does allow those sciences to speak into his word that he has left for us. And the third one, Scripture is not a book of science. And don't treat it as a book of science. But where it does speak to science, it is authoritative. Take that literally. Where it speaks to science, it is authoritative. We're going to go into pure theology this morning. We've spent a lot of time in the last three weeks looking at the sciences and how they relate to origins. Today we're going to take some time to look just purely at theology. Um, This is not a message on angels and not a message on Satan, but it's going to feel a little bit like that in the beginning, so just bear with me. okay? Because we have to take kind of a backdoor approach to get into verse 2 in the way that I want you to understand it. Somewhere in ages past, and we're not told when, God created an unknown number of angels. Revelation speaks to John seeing before the throne 10,000 times 10,000. I don't know if you've ever done the math on that, but you're talking into the many, many millions. We don't know how many angels God created, but we're told that He saved His angels as messengers. Angels, the the word that we use is more familiar to us, but Melach is a word that might be more commonly used to the people who lived in the Old Testament times. And it meant a person who was, or not a person, a being who is a messenger or an ambassador. Now, I want to help illuminate this a little bit for you so you understand when angels appeared on the scene. You've heard me over the last three weeks use the phrase, where were you when I formed the foundation of the earth, taken from Job 38? God challenged Job with that question. Because Job thought he knew all about God. And in the same vein, I don't want to assume that I know all these things and I totally understand it. And you likewise should take it the same way. So when God says, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? He's challenging us to understand we don't have it all figured out. But there's a second component to Job 38 that I want you to see. It starts with, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The next part, if you keep going in that text, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I don't know if you've ever paid attention to that last sentence before, if you've read that text, but that demonstrates that the angels were here before. The earth was created because the angels shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. And it's very important that you get that in proper perspective. One particular angel we've all been told of, perhaps if you were raised in church, referred to as Lucifer, the star of the morning or the sun of the morning, known as the bright one, was the preeminent angel. As a matter of fact, Lucifer is actually a Greek title. If you take the Hebrew word, it's halel, from Hebrew, and the sense of it is the bright morning star, the bright one. It's very important to keep that in perspective when you're studying Genesis. Ezekiel goes into great detail in chapter 28, talking about the fallen angel, who he was and what he looked like. And if you get a chance later today, you might want to go back and read that. That's Ezekiel 28 it has not been given to us to know specifically when angels were created we can't know it hasn't been revealed to us it has been given to us to know that lucifer as the preeminent angel god's bright shining one lucifer fell he chose to rebel against god and he caused sin to enter the universe not just planet earth but to enter the universe Look at Luke 10 with me up on the screen and see what Jesus said. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That is a remarkable statement. Theologically, Jesus is saying, I was there when Satan fell, when Satan rebelled. Uh, If you're not familiar with that text at all, That's from the time when Jesus sent 70 of his disciples out to do ministry in the countryside. And they were healing the sick. And they were casting out demons. And they came back to Jesus and said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus is saying, it's no wonder. I'm the authority over all those. I was there. I existed when one of the angels fell. Lucifer. Have you ever asked yourself this question? fell to where? And fell when? Where did he fall to? If he fell from heaven like lightning, he had to fall to some place. And when did that occur? Satan fell from heaven like lightning. Now Jesus didn't say, Lucifer fell from heaven like lightning. He said Satan fell. So evidently, before he was cast out of heaven, there's a name change that took place. Why? Why? Because God always changes your name to reflect your character. He would no longer be the bright, shining one. He would now be the very adversary of God. Satan, Satan, means the adversary of God. The one who stands in the way. The one who fights against God. He did not want to be a servant of the Most High. According to Isaiah chapter 14. We're going to look at that on the screen in just a minute. He exalted himself in what we call theologically the five I wills. Look for it as we read through this now. And pay attention to his name. How you have fallen from heaven, O star, Halel, of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven, one I will raise my throne above the stars, two. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, three. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, four. I will make myself like the Most High, five. What happened then was that led to a cosmic battle. We're given just a little glimpse into that. The veil is ripped aside for us, the veil covering heaven, In the book of Revelation, so that we can see what takes place when Satan fights against God. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, when you see this on the screen, don't consider this in the context of it applying to the first fall of Satan. The reason I chose to put this into the script of the message is because I want you to see that Satan is constantly at war against God and his purposes. This particular verse, Revelation chapter 12, is speaking to the end times. But this is what Satan is like when he's doing battle. Revelation 12:7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels demons were thrown down with him five times John refers to the name of Satan within that text he calls him the old serpent the dragon Satan and the adversary you can circle those in your text if you happen to have that but notice that John said and there was war in heaven Isn't that one of the last places you would ever expect to see war? You'd never expect to see war in heaven. What we fail to realize, if we don't examine the text thoroughly, is that sin is much older than Adam. Sin preexisted Adam. When Satan caused Adam to fall, sin already existed through himself because he rebelled against God. So powerful and so successful was his rebellion against God that he caused one-third of the angels to follow him. According to Daniel chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 12, there was about a third of the angels that had been created that followed Satan in his rebellion. Don't ask me why. I don't know. They have magnificent understanding of God and his power. You would think. That the angels, comprehending who God is, would never rebel against an omniscient being. But they did. It's a fact of the matter, and that's what Scripture says. The angels followed him. Now stay with me on this. The angels followed Satan. Some of them became demons. Some of them were locked away permanently in hell, being reserved unto the day of judgment. If you look at Second 2 Peter 2.4, you'll see the second half of the angels that were condemned. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Peter's going on to talk about how we cannot be disobedient to God. But in that context of 2 Peter 2.4, we understand that some of the angels are already bound and have been put away. Some of the angels followed Satan and became his minions, became his demons. Understand that Satan is the originator of sin. It started with him. He's the enemy of God. Now, this is not a message on Satan. We'll come back to that another time. But I told you on the Sunday before Christmas that I wanted to expand a little bit on Satan and how he plays into the role of origins. Unquestionably, his rebellion was uncovered. And God passed a sentence on him because this is the, one of the most significant battles to ever take place in the history of the universe when Satan rebelled in heaven. This is one of a series of judgments that's been issued against Satan when he was cast out of heaven. His original rebellion, the very first one when he rebelled against God, got him kicked out of heaven and into the air. That's why the New Testament calls him the prince and the power of the air. The next judgment that will come against Satan will be from the air to the earth, That's in the last days when he's confined to the planet Earth. Right now, he has the freedom to be in the air, to travel from the Earth to the Heaven. The third time is he will be cast from the Earth into the abyss in which he will be held according to Revelation. And finally, at the return of Jesus, Satan will be permanently bound for all eternity and cast into the lake of fire. There's four stages that he goes through. So let's go all the way back to the statement that Jesus made when he said, I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. And I ask the question again: fell to where and when? Did you ever ask yourself this question: how did Satan get into the Garden of Eden in the first place? How did Satan actually get to the planet Earth? In the courtroom of God, according to our understanding of Scripture, and most conservative theologians hold the same view, Satan was judged by God and cast to the earth. And so when you look at verse 25 of Matthew, or chapter 25 of Matthew, it says, "The eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, is something that's held in reserve. Eventually, it's prepared for them. Eventually, Satan's going to be cast there." So if you have an image in your mind that Satan is sitting in hell right now, on a throne, waiting for a little bad people to arrive, that is not the case. Satan is a free-roaming spirit, a created being by God. But he is not in heaven. We already saw that in the text, that he was cast out of heaven. That means he's present here on the earth. There was a decision made by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in that courtroom scene in which Satan was cast out of heaven and to earth. And so when you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, you open up your Bible to an earth that is without form and void. And we've already seen in verse 1 of chapter 1, over the weeks we've looked at this, God created the heaven and the earth. And then there is a break in time. Verse 1, chapter 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, just in case you have it in your mind that I'm a person who ascribes to the gap theory, that is not the case. I want to expand on that a little bit and explain it to you. So let's go to Genesis chapter one, verse two. And this is what I left you with last week when you left the auditorium. I said, please read Genesis chapter one and verse two with the premise in your mind that formless and void tohu abohu means this. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Let's take the word formless first. Tohu. To lie waste, a desolation, a worthless thing, confusion, an empty place, a waste, a wilderness. Okay? That's the first word, formless. Now let's take the second word, void. Bohu. Hebrew. Meaning empty, a vacuity, an undistinguishable ruin. Meaning emptiness. Tohu va bohu. When you put those two words together, it simply means garbage dump. A place of waste. Uninhabitable. So when you open up your Bible, you open it up to a desolate, waste place. But God does not make the uninhabitable. Look at Isaiah 45:18 with me. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste, a tohu place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. So why would you open up your Bible to a worthless thing? Because the rebellion of Satan has already occurred. And Satan's presence on earth makes it a formless waste void. So between verse 1 and verse 2, you have the fall of Satan. So follow with me. Point number one. So sometime after the creation of the angelic beings, God created the heavens and the earth according to Job 38. And point number two. Between verse 1 and verse 2, Lucifer rebelled against God, became Satan, and was cast out of heaven with one-third of the angels. Now verse 2, look at it again. The earth was formless and void, tohu abohu. The word, the world, was tohu abohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The word darkness is one that you could underline because in most places where it's used in the context it's used here, it refers to judgment. The judgment of God. The judgment of God was over the surface of the waters. It's not always used that way in fairness as you look through the Old Testament. But in most cases where it's used in this sense, it's used in judgment. So the earth is tohu abohu with judgment on it. Look at the second half of the verse. This is the reason why I believe that God wanted you to know that the earth was formless and void. See, the writings could have simply gone from verse 1 to verse 3, but they didn't. So whenever God communicates something to us, we have to say, why did He want us to know that? Why did He want us to know it was formless and void? Here's the reason I believe. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now before I go on with you and explain that, I want to just take a moment to explain the context of the gap theory. So if you hear this used, you can refute it. The gap theory is acclaimed by most people today and the very well-meaning Christians to believe that there's a place for the geological record. That you have to take millions of years between verse 1 and verse 2 and account for the fossil record, for the Ice Age, and for the dinosaurs. That is not scripturally consistent. God doesn't need millions of years to create a fossil record if it came out of the Noah, flood of Noah. And the Ice Age doesn't have to be in that gap of time either. That's merely a place where well meaning Christians have placed the geological record between verse 1 and verse 2 to try and accommodate the scientific world. It's not consistent with Scripture. The only reason I hold to that gap between 1 and 2, and most conservative theologians do, is because of the fall of Satan, which could have been instantaneous. It could have just been a fall of lightning from heaven. And then God said, it's a waste place and I'm going to shape it to make it inhabitable. It does not need to be a long period of time. Now here I want to take you back to the second half of the verse. I think the reason God wants us to know about this and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters is because of the word moving. Look at the Hebrew word for it. "raqfa," A primitive root to brood or to hover over. Have you ever pictured God as hovering like a bird over its nest? There's one other place where that word is used, and it's in Deuteronomy 32.11. Deuteronomy 32.11, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. It's a beautiful picture. The very same God who transformed the world from a waste, desolate place then says, I'm brooding over it. I'm covering it. And he actually uses the imagery in Job chapter 38 as a mother carrying her child in swaddling clothes. God embraces his creation. I think that's really remarkable because he's saying, I not only can pronounce judgment on my greatest created being, Lucifer, and cast him from heaven and have a desolate place that by the very word of God that I speak into existence, this earth inform it and shape it. I cradle it as my creation and love it like a mother with her baby in a swaddling clothes, and I love it. That's where some theologians take the concept of the feminine side of God. God said he created man in his image, male and female created he them. The feminine side of God, the loving, transforming side of God, the nurturing side of God. Now let's come full circle, all the way back around to the concept of Communication and ask this question. How was the earth formed? How did it get from nothing, desolation, to something? Keep this in mind as we look at 11, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, In Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. This is how the earth was formed. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. If we're examining truth, all of truth, as we look at the context of these passages, we have to accept the fact, scientifically set aside, that it happened because God wanted it to happen. He spoke it into existence. I just listened to a report this week of a lab in Pennsylvania in which they've taken a few cells, and have what the newsmakers call created life. Well, actually, the life was in those cells that they took. And they're trying to build an organ. And there's been success with this over the years. I I applaud science for its ability to keep moving forward like that. A lot of us are a testament to modern advances of medicine. But they didn't create life. God spoke those molecules into existence. So, if truth is fundamentally about who God is, and if he says, my nature and my character is so holy that I took the very highest of my creation, the bright shining one, the star of the morning, and I judged him for his rebellion and cast him out, what does that have to say about us and our relationship to him? And if, as God, he also says in verse 2, I took a planet that was void of all life, and by my very word I spoke it into existence to be an inhabited place. I reformed it and shaped it for you. Does that not say that he can deal with your life problems? That he can recalibrate the mess that your life might be? And if, as in verse 2, he also says, I love my creation so much that I cradle it as a newborn baby. I wrap it in swaddling clothes. What does that say for you? One within whom you are not just creation, but you have a soul. An eternal, living, breathing being who will dwell with him someday, either in eternity in heaven or in eternity in the abyss. Does that not say that the God who loved you so much might also have a plan for you? A plan of redemption? That's a really cool image when you look at verse 2. The God who judges is the God who forms and cradles and shapes. Maybe a God like that would even be willing to sacrifice himself for you. Maybe a God like that would even be willing to let himself be crucified to redeem us as fallen people. As we leave today, I'm going to share the context of a verse with you that I would like you to take time this week to read again and again because we'll come back to it next week. And this is from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. It will be up on the screen. You can open your Bibles if you want to. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. This is a testament of our time. Follow closely the words. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. "...being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened." This speaks to our world of science today when you read the next sentence. "...professing to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 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 That was written 2,000 years ago. No one had conceived of evolution at that time. But God knew that we were given to wander away from Him. We were given as a people to look for something other than God. And they exchanged the truth for a lie. That's where we're going next week. I hope verse 2 is a little more illuminated for you today as you leave. Let's pray. God, if if verse 2 is illuminated for us, it's because of Your Spirit. Not because of any crafty presentations or style of delivery, but because Your Spirit broods over this church. God, You desire us to be a force, And to be bold for you. Make it so, Father. Make it that way for us. Help us to be powerful on your behalf. Because of your Spirit and because we have a relationship with you through the sacrifice of Jesus. Without that, it would not be possible.